Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Sue Gray has finally published her report into what parties were held and when in Downing Street. Well, nearly. The diminished version in the form of an update was published on Monday. Even at just five and a half pages, it was damning about the culture and the structure of Number 10 and critical of the failures of leadership, even if it didn't stick that explicitly to leader Boris Johnson. So what does this mean for the Prime Minister and what happens next? Attention now turns to the Metropolitan Police, whose decision to belatedly launch an investigation into the Downing Street parties seriously stymied Gray's own report. Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick is now under huge pressure to explain her actions and for the Met to come up with its own full account. That's in a week, too, when a devastating report on the Met's internal culture has been released by the police watchdog, exposing racism, sexism, homophobia and boasts of domestic violence. And you wait for one much-delayed government report to come along. The long-awaited levelling-up white paper has finally been published. Was it worth the wait? We're going to take a look. I've got a trio of IFG stalwarts with me in the virtual studio today. Director of Research Emma Norris is back from maternity leave. Hi, Emma. How have you been? Thanks, Bronwyn. I've been good. I've been on maternity leave, so I've spent the year, you know, dealing with tantrums, cleaning up mess, watching toys being thrown out of the pram, not a million miles from what's been going on in Westminster. We've missed you. Welcome back. Also with us is Associate Director Tim Durrant. Hi, Tim. You've had a busy week. Hi, Bronwyn. It's great to be here. Yeah, it has been. It has. Well, it's been a busy week, but it's also been, you know, the Sugro report was a bit of an anticlimax. So it's not quite the week I think we we're all expecting when we heard it was going to be published on Monday. And I'm delighted, too, to be joined by IFG senior fellow Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Hi, Bronwyn. How are you? I'm really well. You used to work in number 10. Then and now you write about industrial strategy, regional strategy, what's now called levelling up. Is this week making you miss it? Uh, I wouldn't like to be in this Downing Street. In the last 18 hours, we've had the white paper, the energy price hike, the Bank of England interest rate hike, and Rishi Sunak's response to all of these different things. I'm not sure I'd quite be able to take the pace as well as trying to worry about my own job. So I miss the idea in theory, but maybe under a different leader. Well, let's start with what we're calling Grey Day, the Sue Grey update. Shorn of judgment, most of it, detail on individual events, but damning about the culture and the poor decisions within number 10. Emma, what stood out for you? Well, Bronwyn, like you say, I mean, a lot have been cut out, but I think there was still some really important material in there. I think the first thing that stood out is really just how many parties there were, allegedly, and, you know, 16 different gatherings, a staggering 12 of which have made the bar for police investigation. So I think just seeing, you know, that that list out there will have shocked um, quite a lot of people. And of the 16 events, it's the alleged party in the Prime Minister's flat on the 13th of November that I think is potentially most dangerous for Johnson and when there'll be questions about whether he misled the House. Because back in December, PMQs at Prime Minister's questions, he appeared to deny any rule breaking in his flat. So I think that's one bit of the report to keep an eye on. He chose his words very carefully then, didn't he? He, he said, I'm sure that all the rules and the guidelines were followed. Exactly. So I think the question is, were they and um, and will we find out? I, I think the second thing that stood out for me is really Gray's description of the culture in number 10. You know, we heard about excessive drinking, yeah. junior staff feeling fearful of calling out bad behaviour and probably kind of worst of all and most damning, a, a total disconnect between number 10 and the huge sacrifices that were being made by the population at large. So, you know, it might have been a short report, but it, it was quite damning in places. 
I think probably the third thing I'd pick out, and this is the one that I suspect we're going to you know, be hearing a lot more on, is really what happens with the rest of the report. Gray's made it clear that she's got huge piles of evidence. You know, we've heard about 300 photos, 500 pages that she's keeping locked away and that she's passed on to the Met. And we know that there's definitely a fuller version of the report that predated the Met intervention. Gray writes in the report that we have that she can't provide a fuller account at present. She uses those words. So whatever it is that the Prime Minister intends, it does sound like Gray is expecting an opportunity to say more. So I think it does look like this one's going to run and run. She's given every sign that she would like her report to be out in full, hasn't she? She has. But of course, the final decision is with the Prime Minister. Gray reports to the Prime Minister and it's up to him whether he allows more out in public. Now, Tim, you've been updating our timeline of Downing Street parties. It's getting pretty packed, isn't it? It is. There's a lot. As as Emma said, there were um, 16 in total, including the interesting thing in Gray's report was there were three events that hadn't been in the press beforehand. So you assume that is now the end of of the leaks of of dates of parties, but it's, it's a busy timeline. It's an interesting question, though, about what impact it's having kind of more broadly, because I think before the report was out, you know, polls were suggesting most people had made up their mind. Most people do think that rules were broken in Downing Street. It doesn't really matter what the Prime Minister says at this point. Most people do think the rules were broken. It's clearly had an impact on the polls. And obviously, you know, things change. But um, the Labour Party has been ahead in the polls consistently with a greater or lesser margin for, for a few weeks now. So it feels like, yes, the story is still going to run and run, but actually the kind of public reaction has already taken place. And that's before we know exactly what Boris Johnson was involved in. How many parties, gatherings, as Sue Gray calls it, do we think he might have been involved in? Well, there's the one in the flat that Emma mentioned. There's several leaving dues that he's uh, alleged to have made speeches at or, or talked about. And then, of course, there's the bring your own booze one in the garden in May 2020. So I think it's, it's the flat and the, the bring your own booze ones that are particularly of interest as to exactly what he said about his knowledge of those events and how that tallies up with what Gray's detailed investigation finds. I always thought it stood for bring your own bottle, but I'm also way out of date. There's a sea of booze out there. Giles, the Prime Minister responded by announcing plans to set up an office for the Prime Minister to replace the Prime Minister's office. And he said he fundamentally he would restructure number 10. You're an alumnus of that building. What do you reckon? I don't think it's relevant at all. I mean, I, I sort of stand with Theresa May, obviously, who was my ultimate boss there. When she stood up and asked these questions about whether they understood the rules or whether they thought the rules didn't apply to them, that sort of a, a point can't be solved with a structural organisational change. As somebody used to say about um, public sector reform and the new Labour, it's about standards, not structures. And I don't think anyone believes that the structure of the organisation within Downing Street was the reason people didn't understand what was right or not. Because after all, the government had to impose these rules over the whole country through a system of clear communications, hands, face, space, stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS. We can all remember it. That was meant to be the method that worked no matter how distant you were from the Prime Minister. So the idea that you needed a it's an overworked principal private secretary is the problem here. I mean, if only you'd had the time or there'd been someone else managing the HR function, they could have made it really clear that you don't gather in a certain way. That just doesn't wash because it wasn't the technique being used on any of the rest of us. So I don't think you should expect too much sympathy for that particular idea because it isn't an excuse that would have worked anywhere else. And if people feel, well, number 10 could be more versatile, quick, better organised, sure, but it's not what people are angry about. 
You put it very well. We, we didn't all need private secretaries in order to work out what the rules were. Exactly. Tim, you wrote a letter to the Times this week and you argued that the Prime Minister did not go far enough. What did you call for? Exactly. I mean, as, just to agree with Giles, you know, we said a restructure of number 10, that won't solve the problem. The problem fundamentally here is one of, of leadership and of modelling the best behaviour and standards that we expect of our leaders, of our elected uh, representatives. We pointed out in that letter that in his statement to the Commons about the Grey Report, the Prime Minister said he'd be looking again at the Code of Conduct for the Special Advisors and for civil servants, but he did not mention the one code that applies to him, that governs his own behaviour, the Ministerial Code. And we think it's really important that the Ministerial Code is properly restored to kind of a, a, a document that is respected, that people can trust, and that the Prime Minister really needs to set the tone and show leadership on enforcing that, holding his ministers and ultimately himself to the standards, not only that we expect of everyone in society, but to higher standards because these are the people leading the country. Let's throw this forward a little bit. We're going to come on in our second section to talk about the the, the police. But Mm. just on Tory MPs, they're restless. That's putting it a bit mildly. Where do they go on this from here? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? There was briefing that maybe the, the fact that the report was fairly lacking in detail meant that MPs would hold fire, would wait to see what comes out later with following the Metropolitan Police's investigation or indeed the fuller Subo report later on. But actually over this week, we've seen this kind of continued drip, drip, drip of MPs, Conservative MPs saying publicly that they no longer have confidence in the Prime Minister. We saw Tobias Elwood, chair of the Defence Select Committee. We saw a couple of more recently elected Conservatives and some some of the old guard as well, explicitly saying they've sent their letter of no confidence to Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee. So obviously he's the only person who knows how many letters there are, but it feels like there is still in the background this kind of low level of lack of confidence, of, of unhappiness, and that has the potential to blow up very quickly. There's that Hemingway quote that's been doing the rounds about people who go bankrupt two ways gradually and then suddenly, and it feels like the Prime Minister is possibly at risk of the same thing happening to him. Obviously, that only means that there would be, if it were to happen, there would only be a vote of confidence that there's no guarantee that he would lose that vote. But it does feel like things are still on very shaky ground. Mm, Thank you for that. I'm not going to tangle with Hemingway in this podcast, but everything (laughs) happens either gradually or suddenly. I thought it was just, we'd have a separate philosophical one. Emma, you lead our work on inquiries. What do you reckon about the handling of this one? Well, look, I mean, in some ways you could say this has been a badly handled inquiry, but, you know, really in appointing Sue Gray, government was just following the path that these internal inquiries usually take. I think the problem is really that the system of standards in government just doesn't work in cases like these. Um, You know, a civil servant, no matter how professional they are, no matter how independent minded in the broadest sense they are, they're just not the right person to investigate the prime minister. The prime minister is ultimately their boss. Is it because it's the prime minister? So so if it was a really senior cabinet minister, would the system hold up? I think it's easier for it to hold up in those circumstances. You know, look at the Damien Green situation. But when it's the prime minister, him or herself, it becomes far more difficult. The person you're investigating is also the person that you're answerable to. And, you know, I think the other problem is that the one person who does have licence to judge the most senior ministers and the prime minister is Lord Guy, the independent advisor on ministerial interests, but he doesn't have the power to launch his own inquiry. And he, again, is reliant, um, he's reliant on the prime minister. So, you know, I think it's a situation where we just don't have the tools at the moment to hold the person right at the top to account. Um, I guess it's also worth saying, though, that 
No investigation um, can decide what the consequences should be for the Prime Minister. This inquiry, or any inquiry like it, was never going to directly condemn or save the Prime Minister. That's a role that is quite rightly reserved for MPs, for Parliament and ultimately for the public. So I do wonder if we've been expecting a bit too much from the inquiry too. Um, The final decision about what should happen is already in the hands of MPs and already in the hands of the public, as Tim says. Lots of them have made up their mind already. Can I also point out that if it hadn't been for revelations about what sounded like quite a minor party infringement from Simon Case, we might have been facing the situation where the cabinet secretary, appointed to many people surprised by the prime minister, would be the one leading this inquiry. And concerns about his ability to be properly tough and objective would be I would be dominating conversations right now. That it's Sue Gray, I think we can all be really grateful for because her reputation is so strong in this area. And everyone has anecdotes about how tough Sue Gray has been. I wonder what world we'd be in if it was the Cabinet Secretary doing this and the number of op-eds being written about how it's hopelessly compromised. Charles, I just wanted to bring in quickly this question of Lord Agnew, um, who resigned recently as a minister, saying that the government wasn't doing enough about fraud, particularly over coronavirus, and uh, not enough about economic crime, though the government has now conceded that it will go ahead with the the bill that's intended to stop uh, economic crime. What should we make of this attack, which was very much in the same spirit, saying a government, you know, the government is undermining its own ability to say it stands up for law and order? I think that's a really good way of putting it. Lord Agnew was really quite careful in his words. He wasn't objecting to the idea that we needed to offer really rapid and generous loan support um, almost two years ago when the pandemic broke out. He wasn't saying that Rishi Sunak was wrong then, but he was saying that given you do this sort of thing, you immediately raise the risk of significant economic crime, fraud in particular. And this was obvious incredibly quickly in the case of bounce back loans. I think at the time I wrote my piece for the Institute for Government warning about this scheme, it was already apparent that a very large percentage of these loans would be written off and either through mistakes or people who couldn't borrow, which is serious, or worse, through fraud, which the British Business Bank was so concerned about that they asked for a direction from the minister with plenty of very explicit warnings. So in response to that, a really proactive government would say, right, we're going to put immediate fierce resources into dealing with this and make very clear statements about the punishment you're going to suffer if you are caught behaving in a criminal way on this matter. And he's saying that he, seen, he saw no signs of that and still, you know, 18 months later, doesn't see anything. So it really damages the government's communications because when it's trying to say in all corners of Whitehall, money's really important, we need to tighten our belts somewhat. It's very, very damaging to be accused of letting four billion out. And as one of the things I identified was the amount of fraud they appear to have been prepared to write off here is the same as the levelling up fund. The, 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 um, the policy we've been waiting years to see what the content is. They seem to be um, willing to be, be sort of quite blithe about money. So that's very, very difficult for the Treasury and its moral standing within the government, even if they think they did the right thing all along. Let's turn our attention to the Metropolitan Police, the Met, who have hardly covered themselves in glory with their belated involvement in Partygate, and now the report into their culture by the Independent Office for Police Conduct, a watchdog. Emma, why did the police take so long to get involved in this question of parties in Downing Street? 
Well, I think the truth is it's quite hard to understand the Met's kind of decision making on this one. For a long time, they said they wouldn't be investigating as they didn't look at potential violations of the COVID laws retrospectively. Although quite how you look at any crime, anything other than retrospectively is slightly beyond me. But, you know, having held this line, uh, which is, of course, what led to the Gray investigation in the first place. And once Gray had all but completed and written up her report, they then decided they were going to investigate some of the events in question, which created chaos. You know, I think when it comes to explaining this, the cons have really been dire. And I think the public would really benefit from a proper explanation as to why the decisions that they made were made. And I think particularly on this issue of whether they really needed to block parts of the Grey report, given that they're only looking at issuing fixed penalty notices, if anything. It looks like most of the lawyers who are commenting on this say that they think that this is overreach and that you can still publish the full Grey report and, you know, go go about pursuing fixed penalty notices. So, yeah, you know, I don't think the comms have been good and I think the public do deserve an explanation. Mm. And as you said, Sue Gray has made it pretty clear that she'd like to publish her report in full once the Met has finished. Charles, what do you make of the number 10 reaction to the Met investigation? Or, or has it got them off the hook at or at least bought them some time? You certainly get the impression that they hoped. In other words, they, they are acting as if the only way Boris Johnson could be toppled is if all the worst things happen at exactly the wrong time and it reaches a kind of crescendo that makes everybody's blood vessels burst and they all just vote him out. And that if these things are phased in some way that suits them, then he can somehow survive. And with his reputation for survival, as his, his, the former Prime Minister David Cameron said, he's, he's like a, a greased piglet, I think. They're thinking that if only you could phase these things correctly, then he'll slip through the arms of everybody and run and escape or whatever it is that piglets do but um so which i find well extraordinarily unprincipled because the facts are the facts and they're going to come out in some order or other and it's just relying on the idea that if they can kind of square off mps in a particular order then they can perhaps um get away with the whole thing it would be a great pity if that was the way the world worked however as somebody who watches the um the betfair betting odds on the prime minister's survival past june all the time it, it did make a difference When Sue Gray announced that she was going to have to significantly slim down or redact her report in response to a request from the Met, the odds of Johnson making it past June, I think, went from 45% to 65%, which is really quite significant. Now, since then, it's moved around all the time. And every time some MP says something, then it moves again, because ultimately the MPs are the arbiter here. But Mm. clearly people think that there's a chance that every day that passes without something awful happening, he gets back on the front foot and gets to announce government policy and look like a prime minister. And that uh, um, Sue McGray being in the short term muffled helped him play along with that strategy. So yeah, that's the way number 10 seems to be playing it. And at times it seems to work. Yeah, but Tim, I mean, as Giles was saying, the facts are the facts, aren't they? And the Met, it's the Met is now sifting through three hundred images, five hundred pages of material that Sue mm. Gray has collected. They are investigating a prime minister, among everything else. Boris Johnson has had to concede that he will say if he finally gets a fixed penalty notice. So, should he be mm. worried? I mean, apart from anything, it's very embarrassing for a prime minister, right, to be in this position. And and we are slightly down the rabbit hole, aren't we, where it's a good thing for the prime minister's political future that he's being investigated by the police. That, to me, does seem strange. Now, obviously, yeah, we don't know what the Met will find. They might decide that there's there's no case here at all and they might not issue any notices at all. Obviously, we, we as, as with the Sue Gray report, we have to wait for that investigation. But it's that kind of, we were talking earlier about, you know, most people have made up their mind about this. It's that kind of ongoing 
odour of dodginess, I think, and that's set in now. And I don't think there's much that he can do to, to get rid of that. You know, surely it's more than that, isn't it? It's about whether he has made statements, including those to the Commons, saying that he did, didn't do something when, in fact, he did. Emma, was that what you were going to come in on? I think also there's something about a feeling of constantly trying to evade transparency and then having to backtrack. I mean, even just in the last few days, we've seen, first of all, they're not going to publish the full report, even if they get the opportunity. You know, Johnson continually refused to confirm that um, in questions after his statement. Then the 1922 committee that evening extracted that commitment from him. So one U-turn. Then he says that uh, number 10 says they're not going to tell us if, if Johnson is issued a fixed penalty notice. Then there's an outcry. Then they have to backtrack and say they will. This constant sense of wanting to try and hold back as much information as possible, then having to U-turn really doesn't help them move on and doesn't help the public feel they're taking, you know, rebuilding trust seriously. And what about this point about the commons? I mean, the danger point for Boris Johnson, always saying an expedient thing, and then someone manages to prove that what he said is not right. I think this is where the greatest danger for him lies. You know, there are, there do appear, he has been careful, but there appear to be some things that he has denied kind of on the record um, in the House, particularly this party in his flat. And I think it all depends on how much ends up coming out in, in a fuller, um, grey account of, of the events. If it does appear that he has misled the House, then I think it really does become very serious indeed. What about Dame Cressida Dick, Commissioner of the Met, under fire from all sides now, because the Home Secretary this week warned that she or that the Met was guilty of failure of leadership in some quarters because of this devastating report by the watchdog, really focusing on one particular uh, unit of the uh, of the Met, but recording all kinds of incidents of abhorrent behaviour. Yeah, and look, I think um, the description of failure of leadership in some quarters is is completely fair. The Met has some very serious institutional problems with racism, with misogyny, with homophobia. And I think the more that comes out, the more the few bad apples defence starts to wear really, really thin. And this week's report from the Independent Office for Police Conduct makes for horrid, painful reading. This comes after numerous other incidents, including the tragic murder of Sarah Everard last year, the Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman case. Um, so to me, it seems obvious that you know serious, deep reform of the Met is needed. And it's really just a question of when it happens and whether it happens with or without their consent. Hmm. Tragic murder by a police officer. Tim, how significant are these accusations and the report from the watchdog and can Cressida Dick survive if she's at odds with the Home Secretary? The way that the, the role works, the Home Secretary has to approve the suspension or the or the firing of the, the Commissioner. Priti Patel said at a select committee earlier this week that she's had very direct, challenging conversations with the Commissioner, but she does still she does still back Cressida Dick. The big question is the sort of relationship between the mayor and the commissioner and the Home Secretary. Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, also said, you know, he's he's expressed his anger and his his disappointment in what the Met is doing. But as Emma says, there's agreement on on all sides of politics, right? Labour is saying, Conservatives are saying that this is not good enough, that things need to change. And so it feels like change is coming to the Metropolitan Police and they need to be ready for that and get ahead of that. What they have done in response to the um, the IOPC report on, on this individual police station and the unit there, they asked uh, Baroness Louise Casey to conduct a review. Now, Louise Casey is, you know, the sort of government's kind of go-to on, on problems. So I'm sure she'll do a thorough review of the Metropolitan Police's conduct and culture. But it, it is clear that they do need to make some big changes and another review isn't necessarily going to be enough. 
Charles, just if you can just take big picture on the police. It's hard for many countries to get the police right. I'm thinking of uh, Balkans, new countries uh, setting up the difficulties of community policing in Northern Ireland. These are, you know, people who have um, they, they, much of the power of the state invested in them, dealing with communities very close quarters, uh, very close culture often not paid very much in comparison to the amounts of money they may be offered to become corrupt. And many countries struggle with this as well. There's so many great television dramas about corrupt police. Britain, on the whole, has had a reputation for police working well. Do you think that public trust is in serious danger? It's interesting because it's probably the case that the police used to be more corrupt than we realised and we didn't investigate it or the culture was that we didn't think it was right to. So, for example, some of the recent cases about past murders that weren't investigated because of closeness between the police and the uh, and the, the people concerned. Whereas, um, you know, we've since seen waves of reform. I don't know where the public trust currently lies. I would imagine it's very variable depending on the community. After all, for example, the, the McPherson report into the police treatment of the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the, the accusation of institutional racism. That clearly marked a point at which there was huge lack of trust between that community and the police. And I don't know whether that's marked to improve it, to be honest. I'm not an expert in this area, but you're right that it's a real asset for this country, that we do regard it as um, something that tends to be incorruptible. But I don't think that these incidents on their own ought to change that. But um, yeah, it's a worrying moment. So let's turn to our third one, big week, uh, and that's levelling up. While Sue Gray's update was short, the levelling up paper was most certainly not. 350 pages plus an annex, and it finally landed on Wednesday, and our team immediately set about trawling through it all, and as well through the statement of Michael Gove, the Secretary of State for levelling up, which he gave to the Commons. Giles, how far did you get? What did you make of it? I think I made it to about a third of the way through and was reading the paper explicitly to try to understand what is the government's model for growth. In other words, if this is about growth, and obviously it's about loads of different things, but if it's about the idea that places outside of the greater southeast could be more productive, have higher incomes, and generally be more prosperous, what is the government's theory for why this is the case? And I'm afraid the answer is it's just about nearly everything. They name human capital, physical capital, financial capital, intangible capital, social capital, and institutional capital, which is my immediate impression was Karl Marx must be spinning in his grave or <laughs> worrying about the next three books he was meant to have written. But more seriously, the more that you break down a problem into lots of different moving parts, the harder it is then to say you need to do it this way or that way, and the harder it is to go to any particular place and diagnose the problem. So if you say, well, problem over here is the combination of social, intangible and financial capital not being quite high enough. What is your policy instrument for dealing with it? Whereas if you do say that it's about poor transport links or poor skills, we do at least know that here is the answer. The answer is to go and put more money into skills, build more roads, build more rail links. Charles, the next thing I want to ask you is, is there enough money in it, new money? Lisa Nandy, Shadow Secretary of State uh, for levelling up, Gove's counterpart accused him and the government of giving more money to fraud than to the North. That was a reference to the uh, Lord Agnew row about money that went um, fraudulently during the, the, the coronavirus support. But the point she's making is that there didn't seem, she argued, to be enough new money for the enormous promises that were made. 
And I mean, the straightforward answer is no. If you think that levelling up is about deploying enough funds outside of the southeast, redistributing in such a way that it gives rocket boosters to the growth prospects through any of these various methods the paper identifies, you know, more skills or more transport infrastructure or more investment in various different ways, then there clearly isn't. And if you, you've just got to think about the scale of the issue, a typical region that's lagging London will have about 100 billion of GDP. And to not be lagging, it would need to have 110, 120 billion of GDP. And to do that, you would need normally to have sustained investment into the tens of billions that eventually produces that extra productivity. There's nothing like that. I mean, the levelling up fund to which Lisa Nandy referred has about £4.8 billion in it, which is about the normal amount that all governments have always had to sort of redistribute around the country and build infrastructural fund innovation accelerators or whatever things they've just come out with. So if you take the standard for this as what East Germany received, that's announced to trillions. We're not getting trillions here. I've always assumed that the levelling up project, if it's to work, has to be about more than just sheer weight of fiscal redistribution that somehow lifts everything up. That might be a start, but it's not the end. And according to most of the people looking at the numbers here, it's hardly even started. And Emma, there's some really big promises, not about money, but about, I mean, life expectancy. I'm trying to light, level up life expectancy, which varies enormously, or healthy life expectancy as well, which varies enormously across the country. What did you make of the, the, the quality of the promises there? Well, I think the really positive thing is that they've actually tried to provide us with some clear things to measure delivery against. They've tried to put some numbers on what levelling up really means. As you say, on life expectancy, Bronwyn, um, on education too, the number of children reaching, reaching the right standard in things like English and maths. I think one of the questions I have is really about accountability. Who's going to you know, monitor whether government is actually achieving some of the big um, policy objectives they've set themselves um, it's never as powerful if government's marking its own homework. Um, and for instance, in another policy area, climate change, you've got an independent institution, the, the Climate Change Committee, who really monitor how government's doing. And I do wonder whether you need something similar here. You need somebody external who can see that the government's delivering against these big objectives. Well, on which note, we've we've published this week the latest edition of our Whitehall Monitor annual report, our, our report, if you like, our, the, the, our annual report on government, uh, which government doesn't do itself. And we take stock of how big it is and, and what's, what it's done in that year. And we've called for the government to make 2022 the, the year of delivery. Could it be? I think it should be. And I think we've got the beginning of a plan here um, with the levelling up white paper. And I think there are some good signs about government's ability to deliver against the kind of the things it's promised here for instance rather than creating lots of new institutions although I have just recommended them create a new one but rather than creating lots of new ones they're investing in the existing framework so devolution deals and mayors that's really positive like often you know you get big industrial strategies plans to kind of level up local areas and you create huge new complex governance structures you you know create loads of new policy that's not what they've done here they have tried to use what's already there which I think is is a kind of positive sign as I say, they're trying to kind of measure what they're delivering against. Um, I, I think the other piece for delivery is the scale of the vision. Clearly, levelling up is a vision that's supposed to shape the future of this country for decades to come. So really, you need a way to build and maintain political consensus over the longer term. Um, and I think that's one of the other big questions for delivery. Um, how do you make sure this lasts you know, longer than one parliament and mm. doesn't just become you know, another cycle of churn? 
Tim, you once worked in the Treasury, and Michael mm-hmm. Gove says he got what he needed from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, though, quoting the Rolling Stones, um, sort of. But there were reports of him having to go around Whitehall, borrowing policies and money off departments to flesh out all his big themes. What's your sense of what he managed to get? I think this reveals kind of the big challenge that's facing Michael Gove with this new department, this levelling up department that he was given in the reshuffle last year. So beforehand, he was in the cabinet office in the centre of government, he was Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, he could, you know, bring together people on a kind of whole of government basis. Now, yes, it's a big department, as Emma says, you know, this is the government's kind of flagship policy that's supposed to restructure the country for, for decades, but he is just one department among many. And the breadth of his vision means that he has to work with other people. You know, the levelling up white paper talks about skills, it talks about crime reduction, it talks about pride in place, it talks about environmental stuff. So it brings together policies that are dealt with by other departments. And if there's one thing we know about Whitehall and government departments is that they don't always work well together and that it really is often only the Treasury and the Cabinet Office that can make them do that. So I think Gove's got a job on his hands and yes, he's got ideas from people to, to fill his paper, but if it's all to be delivered then it requires lots of work from lots of other bits of government. I'm not holding my breath, I guess. And I guess it's worth saying that's also going to happen in a context where the civil service is supposed to be shrinking. You mm. know, According to uh, the spending review um, in 2021, the plan is to reduce the size of the civil service back to pre-pandemic levels by you know, 2024, 2025. So I think there is a big question about how, given the scale of this ambition, given the need to kind of work cross-departmentally to build stronger relationships you know, outside the capital, is it possible to do that whilst making quite a significant reductions and to Whitehall and can you maintain the right capability to do that whilst making those reductions and Charles finally more thoughts about mayors there were there there was there was some in this there was more about how to develop the, the different parts of England what did you make of that well I do think that one of the small areas of consensus across the whole leveling up debate is that you need more devolution you need more of these decisions being made at a local level by people who understand the conditions on the ground and have a stake in things going well there. So insofar as they're putting more political heft behind that idea, that's a great thing. I'm still yet to get through all of the details. I understand they're still very keen on the deals idea, this idea that the government, central government and these local areas, the mayoralties, um, have some kind of a bargain between mutual behaviour. We'll give you money for this if you agree to do that. That still has somebody in Whitehall watching you and saying what's good and what's bad. So I'll be interested to see if they're able to gradually rebuild trust in local areas as a way, as a delivery model for economic growth and sort of take their hands off the steering wheel in Whitehall. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. And one of the really encouraging aspects of the white paper, they mentioned more than just conservative mayors when they said how the model is working well. And that's a good start, because if you only want it to work when it's your own people out there, then um, it will never work. And then they would never create. Uh, lots lots more mayors. Well, we'll definitely come back to that one ahead of the local elections in May. But with that, that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to the home team, Emma Norris, Tim Durrant and Giles Wilkes. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got a very well-timed recording there exploring how the private sector can help levelling up. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Please leave us a review as well, unredacted, nothing left out, please. Names too, if you want. And do check out our website, 
instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest work. We've had two big new reports out this week, Whitehall Monitor, which we've just been talking about and which we're going to discuss when it's not such a noisy week, and the launch of a major new IFG project with Cambridge University's Bennett Institute into the future of the UK constitution. See you next week. Politics is moving pretty quickly these days, but we'll be here now, back in our building, albeit with an excessive coffee and diet coke culture. Have a good weekend.